0: Good morning. Good morning. As Eric mentioned, I'm filling in for Pastor Rick this morning. Rick should be uh, back next Sunday. In fact, he should be getting back to Knoxville uh, tomorrow late. So, welcome everyone. The subject of this morning's message is justice. More specifically, how to face repeated injustices without losing heart. Justice is a word that's been well overused in the recent years. In fact, when I hear the word justice, especially when it's connected to an organization's title, I'm usually suspecting that the justice implications are going to have less to do with the idea of even-handedness, but it's going to have more to do with a a group attempting to legitimize a cause that can't otherwise stand on its own merits. Some of the more popular justice causes out there are environmental justice, indigenous justice, intergenerational justice, gender justice, and of course, climate justice, just to name a few. The word justice is attached to these causes, so that if anyone dare oppose the group, regardless of its virtues, then that someone is attacking the concept of fair treatment. And who wants to be perceived as being an enemy of fairness? But if we set aside all of the uh, biases we might associate with these justice groups, at the heart of this word justice is something we are all very much interested in, fair play. Being part of a system, a society, that's not rigged in somebody's favor. We want a legal system and a judicial branch made up of people who make judgments based on plain facts and not on personal agendas. When we find ourselves in the midst of an injustice, whether committed against us personally or whether we hear about it on the news, it doesn't set well with us. It riles us up, right? It riles us up. We want to see things set straight. And so we take it seriously. In fact, it's not uncommon to hear people make this comment during presidential election cycles. They say, you know, I really don't care that much for my party's candidate. In fact, I don't like him at all. The only reason I'm voting for him is because who I think he'll appoint to the Supreme Court. I've heard that comment hundreds of times over the last 30 years, and I'm sure I'll hear it plenty more over the next couple of years. So with these thoughts as a backdrop, we come to the Bible verses under our consideration this morning. They're found in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 18, verses 1 through 8, the parable of the persistent widow. But before we read the passage, I want to draw your attention to the verses that take place before our passage. In other words, the context. Because this is one of those places where the chapter breaks, from chapter 17 to 18, can leave you thinking, aha, we're off to a new topic in chapter 18, but that's not the case. That's not the case at all. Chapter 17 and chapter 18 are connected. In fact, the beginning in verse 22 of chapter 17 of Luke, Jesus is describing the environment, the state of world events leading up to his second coming. And we know from the parallel verses to these verses, the ones in Matthew 24, that the times leading up to the second coming of Jesus are going to be terribly challenging times, especially for Christians. Notice in verse 26 of Luke 17, Jesus compares how the end times will be like the days of Noah. So we have to ask ourselves, what were the days of Noah like? In Genesis it says, the wickedness of man was great, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. But there's more about the days of Noah. It's strongly suspected, if we're understanding Genesis 6 correctly, and I don't want to be dogmatic on this particular point, that fallen angels were taking human women as their wives and they were having offspring. These offspring had unusual physical characteristics. They're described as mighty men, men of renown. They're known as the Nephilim, a word that means giants. In other words, human genetics were being infected and altered in the time of Noah. And then Jesus goes on to describe the end times in verse 28 that it will be like another time, the time of Lot. In Lot's day, as described in Genesis 19, it was a time when the perversion and the pervasiveness of homosexuality had become so culturally accepted that all the men of Sodom, as it says in verse 4 of chapter 19, all the men, both young and old, all the people... To the last man surrounded Lot's house to force their desires on Lot's male guests. So when we combine the times of Noah and the times of Lot, the times that we could be facing in the end times, this are, these are the characteristics. The thoughts and actions of every person being very evil, prop- possibly re-engineered human genetics, violent sexual perversity standing at the door trying to force its way in and, as, and insisting on full approval and cooperation. It's within this context that then Jesus presents the parable of the persistent widow. We shouldn't make the mistake of reading it as a standalone story. And since some of us are no doubt feeling a sense of deja vu, between the times that Jesus described as the last times, we probably ought to set up and take notice. So I'm, not, I'm not forecasting, I'm not predicting that we're in the end times right now. But you have to admit that we've certainly in, entered some very interesting times for Christians. Times even in this nation when the so-called scales of justice seem to be leaning a bit and not in our favor. So if you if you can open your Bibles, let's read... Luke chapter 18, verses 1 through 8. And then, and this is, this is uh, Luke, Luke starting out, And then he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, this is Jesus speaking, In a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? I'm gonna divide the discussion on this parable into three parts. The prescription, the proof, and finally, the preview. What's to come? This is one of those parables where the Holy Spirit kindly leaves us no room to miss the point Jesus was making because right up front, Luke tells us the purpose is to instruct us that we should always pray and not lose heart. And remember, the end times will be the most difficult time in all world history, a time when a Christian's vulnerability to losing heart will no doubt be real. So what does Jesus mean in verse 1, to lose heart? If you have the King James Version, it's translated to not faint. Of course, it's not speaking of the physical sense, anything about fainting or some sort of cardiac condition, although that's not to say that our physical condition doesn't contribute to our predisposition toward losing heart, but what it means is to be wearied out, exhausted, utterly spiritless. And we've all experienced how a poor night's sleep or several nights' sleep can affect our spiritual temperament, or even having a chronically debilitating illness, especially one that leaves a person in constant pain can certainly be a factor in spiritual exhaustion, but the condition itself of losing heart, the case before us this morning, it's the result of exposure to unrelenting injustice without any hope of a future fair reckoning. The result of concluding that there is no light at the end of this tunnel, and more importantly, the promised light is not coming. If you've ever read stories about prisoners of war, or prisoners in concentration camps, you're familiar with the prisoners who die quickly because of fatigue of the spirit. One day that prisoner is just like all the others, but the next day their demeanor, the gaze in their eyes, noticeably change, and their fellow prisoners recognize they won't be around much longer. Not just because of the harsh conditions, but due to a loss of spirit of hope. Internally, the prisoner has concluded, I am never going to get out of here. They've lost heart. And so that brings us to point number one, the prescription. Jesus provides us with the remedy to losing heart in difficult times when injustices are severe. The prescription, as it says in verse 18-1, is always pray. Now I know some of us tend to be procrastinators. Some of us are the type of people who are always looking for loopholes. So they might be thinking to themselves, didn't we just decide the context for this? Always praying was the end times? I think I'll wait to start this program of always praying until things get a little worse, until we get a little closer to the end. But if you employ this remedy of praying until we enter more turbulent times, you're missing the point. What Jesus is telling us is that in the very worst case scenario, the end times, the period that surpasses all other times in history in regard to human suffering, it's in this environment that the prescription of persistent prayer will protect you against losing heart. My point is, wouldn't it follow then that the prescription effective in the worst case scenario will also be affected in every situation less severe than the worst case. Let me, let me offer an analogy. Let's say I manufactured an umbrella, guaranteed to protect against softball-sized hail. It made it from lightweight material, so it was still manageable, but it was very, very tough, could withstand pounding hailstorms. And then I gave you one of these as a sample. Now let's say a month or so later, I see you standing on a street corner waiting for a taxi. And there's a powerful rainstorm storm coming down. You're getting soaking wet. When I see this, I come over to you and say, Hey, why, are you, why aren't you using the umbrella? And you reply, Well, I'm waiting for that softball-sized hail to come. Well, you can see the problem, the umbrella was made for virtually every storm you could ever encounter, so it would be silly to keep it at your side and not deploy it. And likewise, Jesus' prescription to prevent losing heart will be effective for all human storms, all severities of injustice. And wouldn't we have to agree that Christians have been known to lose heart in far less trying circumstances than those equal to the end times? But let me take it a step further for those who are still contemplating procrastinating. Let me remind you of a sign of the times, our current environment with just one example of injustice. Think back when the COVID-19 pandemic was in full swing. State governments were making rules restricting the gathering of people in order to spread uh, spread the virus. Or to prevent spreading the virus. And in many states, this included churches because they were considered non essential. But at the same time, liquor stores and bars were considered essential. Churches, non essential to society and forced to close. Liquor stores and bars, essential, so they were allowed to remain open. Wasn't this a case of obvious injustice? After all, can you think back to any point in history, any place on the globe where there was a disaster, and we can reflect back and conclude, wasn't it fortunate that during that crisis the influence and increase of alcohol saved the day? Of course you can, that's ridiculous. Or have you ever personally observed a family going through difficulties only to be saved by the increase of alcohol consumption? Has anyone ever concluded, you know, that troubled family was finally healed only when the father started drinking more beer? No. Hasn't happened. Or have you ever been a supervisor over employees? And can you recall a time when you attributed a positive turnaround of an employee in their attendance and their productivity due to an increase in his time spent at bars after work? No. My point is declaring churches as non-essential which have been credited with saving lives and families and cultures and deeming bars and liquor stores essential was an injustice so obvious and on such a wide scale. It should wake up any of us who want to wait until times get a little worse before we take Jesus' prescription seriously to always be praying. But now we need to address a question about this prescription to always pray. Why prayer? Why would it be effective in preventing us from losing heart? But first, we've got to look again at context. This time, we're going to look at the verses after our verses. We're going to look in chapter 18, verse 9, where we have the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. And once again, Luke gives us the meaning of the parable up front. It says, He also told a parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. We can't jump from our parable of the persistent widow with its clear focus on prayer and proceed to the next parable with its clear warning concerning hypocrisy in prayer without noticing the intentional connection between the two parables. Look at verse 11. Notice what the Pharisee is saying. He says, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. See there in the middle of the verse where the Pharisee thinks God that he's not unjust? When we go to the Lord in prayer pleading for justice, We need to proceed with caution and not be like this Pharisee because inherent in our plea for justice is the assumption that we are in the right and our opponent is treating us unfairly. Our opponent is unjust in the wrong. We need to be sensitive to the possibility that we could be approaching the throne, exalting ourselves and treating others with contempt, as the Pharisee was doing. So keeping context in mind, let's continue answering the question, why will prayer keep us from losing heart? And first of all, most importantly, you're keeping the lines of communication between you and the Lord open. Ah, but somebody might say, wait a minute, Why would that be an issue in the last days or during any period when the powers of darkness are closing in? After all, wouldn't it be our natural tendency to turn to God more as the need for heavenly help increased? Well maybe at first. But what if turning to God didn't seem to be helping? What if the injustices were stacking up faster than the answered prayer? Would you eventually resign yourself to the probability that God isn't listening anymore? and prayer simply isn't helping? Look at what Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 3 about the last days. In the last days people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless. He goes on and on and on, but you get the point. It's not hard to imagine in an environment with those characteristics, Christians will be subjected to so many repeated injustices that they could easily grow faint and lose heart and give up on help coming from God. So this is why Jesus warns us, don't stop praying. Don't stop going to God justice is coming. Now, if you'll indulge indulge me for a second and let me bore you with another one of my trail running analogies, I'm probably the most unimaginative runner in all of Tennessee. I run the same exact trail, three miles, every single time, almost without exception. I've ran it thousands of times. But a few years ago, when I was finishing a run, I decided, I wonder what it would be like to go ten miles today. And so I kept running. As I entered the fifth mile, it was getting a little bit rough. But when I hit mile number six, something strange happened. I got a second wind, a sudden burst of unanticipated energy that carried me all the way through the ten miles. And when that energy hit me, I remember thinking to myself, Wow, that's interesting. That second wind was waiting out there at mile number six all along, and I never even knew it. If I hadn't gone this extra distance, I would never know. And when we give up on God, when we lose heart, we remove any chance of experiencing a burst of spiritual second wind. And there's another. There's a number of additional reasons on why prayer is the medicine to prevent growing faint. We don't have time to do much more than mention them. Here's here's one, when you enter into prayer to our God, you are immediately in the presence of one who has experienced injustice at the hands of men to a degree of injustice far greater than we will ever even imagine. Remember what Hebrews 12.3 says, consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men speaking about Jesus, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. But in the case of Jesus' injusti- injustice, we were the guilty party. Remember Isaiah 53.5, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our inequities. The punishment that brought peace, brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. Here's one more reason on why why prayer is effective. As Jesus says in Luke 18:8, 8, your prayer will be answered speedily. Now this might sound like a problem. After all, why would I have why would we have to be persistent in our prayers if they were answered speedily? In other words, if I went to God with prayer number 1, And he answered it speedily, why would I be going back to God with prayer number one again? And if you've ever been around, if you've been in Christian circles for a while, I I bet I know what you're thinking right now. You're thinking, I know what he's going to do. He's going to take us to 2 Peter chapter 3, one where it says, with the Lord a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day. So in other words, when Jesus says speedily, Be a thousand years. But while this verse about God's sense of time in 2 Peter chapter 3 is obviously true, I don't think it applies to this situation. Because Jesus asks in verse 7: He says, Will God delay over them, long over them, in answering their petitions for justice? It's a rhetorical question. The answer is clearly no, He won't delay. But if, but if what, re, what Jesus really means is that anything up to a thousand years counts as speedily, I'm not sure why he would even include this in answering his in saying he's going to answer prayer speedily, because it would have the opposite effect. It would have been it would have been better for Jesus to just leave this out of the parable than to promise promise quick answers when he really meant you need to hold on for a thousand years. It'll have the opposite effect. So I don't turn to 2 Peter to answer this question. Let me offer an alternative explanation to speedily. Imagine, if you will, a man going to his dentist for his regular exam, and the dentist says, you know, you've got a molar here that needs to come out. You've got to do a tooth extraction. It won't be complicated. Come back next week. You'll be in and out of here in an hour. We'll do this procedure speedily. Okay? Then on the way home from the dentist's office, the man stops at his neurologist to find out the results of a recent CAT scan he had. And the neurologist says, man, we got problems. You've got a brain tumor. Now, first, I'm sure you're all thinking, boy, I I hope he's got good insurance. This guy's got problems. But the neurologist says, this brain tumor's got to come out quickly. The neurologist goes on and says, it's going to be a very complicated procedure. It's going to take a team of specialists working together. Once we start the surgery, it's going to take at least 10 hours with all of us working speedily. When a man hears about the length of the brain surgery, he says, well, what do you mean by speedily? I just came from my dentist office. He said he's going to be able to pull a tooth in one hour. And you're saying it's going to take 10 hours? So I think we can see the difference. They're both working speedily one of the procedures is a whole lot more complicated though when we pray for justice there may be a lot of deep maybe a lot of details to be worked out in the heavenly realms that we're just not aware of not to say that god can't answer difficult prayers but we really have no idea all that may be involved in completing the answer but we can rest assured though if jesus says speedily The process of answering our prayers begins immediately, not after a day, and certainly not after a thousand years. So we've covered the prescription for preventing losing heart, persistent prayer. Now we're gonna move to point two, the proof. The proof that the prescription will be effective in obtaining justice while not losing heart. And for proof, Jesus gives us this parable, which is a story of a battle between a helpless widow and a heartless judge. Almost unfortunately, the story has been told so many times, probably starting when you were a child in Sunday school, that it may have taken on some kind of sentimental uh, uh, sentiment, like a fable almost, kind of like the old woman who lived in a shoe, you know. Here you have this lady, she's living under difficult circumstances, she overcomes the odds. And there's a happy ending. End of story. That would be a serious error. Remember the context. In Matthew 24, Jesus gives us a sense of how bad the end times are going to be when he says there will be great distress, unequaled from the beginning of the world until now and never to be equaled again. And it's with this that Jesus gives us this parable to equip us to get through those times. It's far from merely a sweet little story. No, this parable will act as a shield to protect us against the most dreadful period of time that any human being will ever encounter. If we look a little closer at the parable, let's not forget, being a widow in that culture at that time was to be in a very distressing situation. She had no one to stand up for her no one to share the daily burdens of life, but instead she had a relentless adversary, an opponent who day after day, month after month, was somehow unfairly taking advantage of her situation and oppressing her. Had he misappropriated her home, her land, a vineyard? We don't know. But it's clear she knew she was on the right side of the law and desperately needed somebody with a judicial authority to settle the matter and finally give her justice and she had only one tool at her disposal, persistently pleading her case before a judge, the only judge available. These judges would travel a circuit between towns under their jurisdiction. They'd set up a tent and hear, hear the cases and, and decide disputes, but the judge in this parable had some personality weaknesses that didn't make him particularly well suited for his occupation. It says he neither feared God nor respected man. In other words, he only cared about his own comfort, which is far from the original intent for a judge's qualifications. Remember all the way back in the book of Exodus with Moses. Moses was judging all the Israelites' disputes, and his father-in-law, his father-in-law comes along and says, Moses, what are you doing? His father-in-law told him, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God and are trustworthy, and divide up these disputes so you don't get overwhelmed. Look for men who fear God and are trustworthy. This judge had no fear of God, and he was perfectly okay with knowing this about himself, which makes him kind of an unusual character. And let me show you what I mean. Take this. Ta- let's, let's go back to the case of the self-righteous par- uh, Pharisee who's praying, the one who's looking scornfully in the direction of the uh, tax collector. What if one of us was to somehow come up behind him and tap him on his shoulder and tell him, "Uh, you know, in God's eyes, you're a hypocrite. God has less respect for you than he does that tax collector over there. that, That Pharisee would be in complete disbelief, right? In his mind, no doubt, he was the apple of God's eye. He was doing everything as it should be done according to the letter of the law. He would be surprised to find, out, to find that out. And that's, that's commonly the way of, of people, no matter how incompetent they are, they usually feel like they're doing pretty well. But look here at this unjust judge. If we were to tap the unjust judge on the shoulder and point out that, you know, you're, you're a pretty poor example of a judge, not fearing God and respecting men, what would his response be? Uh, yeah, yeah. And your point is, you see, this this judge was not fit for his position, and he knows it, and he was okay with it. As it says in verse 4, this is the judge speaking, though I neither fear God nor respect men. So what we have is Jesus set up the parameters of this parable to be as diametrically opposite as possible to the Christian situation. To our situation. And Jesus does this so it will sink in and act as proof for us that if this helpless widow was able to obtain justice from this heartless, callous judge, won't we receive justice from a God who chose us, who loves us, who bled for us, who intercedes for us, and who will never forsake us? I'm gonna combine point three, the preview, with the conclusion of this sermon. I wish I could conclude on a happy note, a sermon that leaves you feeling good about yourself, good about your future, good about the strength of your faith. But if I did that, I would be suggesting an outcome that Jesus indicated was gonna be more of the exception than the rule. To begin with, we get a warning from Jesus that there's going to be unpleasant times in store for Christians as we wind down closer to the end. Then Jesus warns us that under those difficult circumstances there will be a real danger of losing heart, a danger of experiencing spiritual exhaustion. But He graciously doesn't just leave us with the warning, He tells us how we can prevent this undesirable experience from happening. He gives us a prescription, persistent prayer. He even goes so far as to give us this parable to make the point penetrate deep. So if we ever fe- if we ever feel in our hearts that we're growing faint, we can remind ourselves, remember the widow, don't give up. God will come through. But then after all that, Jesus ends the parable by saying something rather alarming in verse 8. He says, Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? By adding the word nevertheless to his observation, we get the feeling that Jesus is looking over the future at the end times, and he's observing the great majority of Christians having that prisoner of war gaze in their eyes that I spoke about earlier, the one signifying a complete loss of hope. And this is point three. The preview. That will be the reality for most Christians. So we may be asking ourselves, well, what does this all mean for Jesus to not find faith? Have people actually lost their salvation? Or are they just experiencing some kind of crisis of faith while they're waiting for Jesus to return, but they're still technically Christians. What does it all mean? And the answer is, I I don't know. I don't know what it means. I suppose it's like someone providing you with driving directions how to get someplace or another, and after hearing the directions, you ask, but what happens if I don't follow these directions? Where will I end up then? And in in that case, the answer is, I suppose you'll end up just about anywhere except the place where you should be. But if you follow Jesus' directions for not losing heart or losing faith all the way to the end, if you persevere in prayer, even starting now, when the injustices seem slight compared to what they will be, then you will end up exactly where you should be. And then you could have a happy ending. Let's pray. Father, please don't let anyone listening today grow faint and lose heart. If we are afflicted, let us not be crushed. If we are perplexed, not driven to despair. If persecuted, not feeling forsaken. If struck down, not being destroyed. May you, Lord, be glorified to the very end. Amen. Amen.